live. Okay. <laughs> so welcome everyone to another episode of the Gracia Hopper podcast. I'm super excited for this week's guest, Mark Pershin. Hello Yasmin, thanks welcome. for having me on. All the way from Australia. He came all the way just for the podcast. Just for the podcast. <laughs> and my first meal was at Grassy Hopper. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark is the founder of an amazing NGO called Less Meat, Less Heat. And they've also launched an app called The Climatarian Challenge. So Mark's been on quite an interesting journey founding this NGO. He's very purposeful and mission-driven. And I'm, I'm going to speak for you, but I would say, obviously, in, a, in one line, your mission is to educate um, around our climate issues. Just to perpetuate the human race for another century, potentially. Big, big vision. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Super. So, welcome, Mark. And I usually like to start with our guests, as I already mentioned to you, just talking a little bit about the human journey and many of the guests on this podcast either from a young age had a bit of a different mentality or had a situation in their life which really inspired them to think differently or do something different with their life mm -hmm. I think you had something similar maybe. did um, <clears throat> like you I um, my undergraduate degree was in business so I completed a bachelor of um, bachelor of business major in marketing And um, I was going down a very different path, I guess. Well, actually, probably quite similar path to, <laughs> to most people. Uh, and I was very much like, my aspirations were, you know, get rich and um, yeah, make enough money and get a nice car and, you know, all those things. Um, I very much bought into, yeah, I, I guess I, I swallowed the, uh, the red pill. <laughs> um, And it wasn't until, uh, unfortunately, I had a very, I guess, life-changing experience about eight years ago uh, where I was, um, I was faced with the very real possibility of my life ending. Um, I had a very unfortunate um, set of, an unfortunate incident that happened in um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where my drink was spiked and I was robbed and basically uh, left for dead after having either fallen or been pushed off like a really big height. And the doctors were even surprised that I survived. Um, so I was in a coma for four days and uh, I was in hospital for another two months. And uh, yeah, um, caused trauma for sort of all those around me. And, um, and coming out of that, I, um, I really didn't... All those other priorities of like making money and um, kind of just fell away. Like it wasn't really... I realized that what was left was um, was looking after my family um, spending time with my friends and, uh, and, 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 and giving back in some way because actually one of the really profound realizations was uh, I'm sure everyone has this realization once you travel is especially coming from a quite wealthy country that Australia is that we're lucky we are very fortunate to have quite a comfortable life no matter even if you're jobless in Australia you still get money and you can still live okay you're not going to starve um, for the most part um, so having that experience of a third world hospital in Malay in Kuala Lumpur uh, where we were in a giant room and there was like people screaming and, and there was no air conditioning and it was very it was very horrible 
Um, and then coming back to Australia and having some follow-up appointments there and just having seen that contrast, I realised that I, I have an obligation to somehow give back um, and that I can't really get away from this obligation once you've experienced something like that. So I didn't really know where to start. Do you start with uh, helping refugees, saving whales? I didn't really... I, I explored a few different areas. We have quite a few options nowadays. <laughs> There's a lot of things that need saving, you're right. <laughs> so, um, but every road I went down, I kept sort of bumping up against climate change. I realised that the refugee issue is only going to get worse as the climate gets warmer um, and more extreme weather events happen more frequently. Um, so whales, even if you try and save the whales, they're still not going to necessarily have much to eat with ocean acidification and that kind of thing. So kind of all roads living back to climate change. And I read a few more books about it and then I realised that you can't solve any of these issues in isolation. So that's when I decided I want to focus on climate change. Can I stop you for a second there? Sure. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, no, no. Beautiful. So inspiring. And just, it really struck me that you had quite a traumatic experience. Mm. And something like that could easily make you lose your trust in humanity <laughs> instead of fall in love with humanity and want to save it. So I don't know if maybe you can... What do you think really helped you to think mm. in such a positive way? Because a lot of people would have just said, you know, screw humans. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a really good question. And uh, thanks for, um, I guess, putting handbrakes and, and yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about that. And for a while, I was actually nihilistic. I kind of just, like, I didn't even feel like I should be here. Like, when the doctors told my mom that I had a 5% chance of surviving those injuries, I felt like a ghost. I didn't, like... Just didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, so I kind of, yeah, just tried to sort of drink that feeling away, which didn't work. Um, and, and yeah, it, I guess it, it did take me a while. I, I, yeah, I mean, I thought, okay, so what caused those people that did that to me to do that to me? Um, obviously, they were in a bad situation. I mean, there's no excusing it, but at the end of the day, environmental factors play a lot in people's life decisions, whether they're good or bad. And if you, people, if you put people in a desperate situation, um, then a lot of them will play up and, and do horrible things. I mean, you, you, one just needs to look at crime, um, rates of crime in, say, like a well-to-do country like Norway and compare it to somewhere like Nigeria, where people have a far worse lot in life um, generally speaking so it, it made me realise that it's, it's, it's not it's not you can't just blame it on bad people that there's a massive influence of environment and, and that I guess over time that made me I guess feel pity for people having to do resort to such things that I imagine like, doing something bad to another human being doesn't just cause trauma to the other human being. It causes trauma to you, if you have to resort to that. Definitely. And as you're speaking, I'm just thinking, because I have a very similar perspective. I also studied economics, and then I went to do a master's in politics, mm -hmm. specifically international development. So, in a sense, you can say why poor countries are still poor. Yeah. And I got very interested in... Um, 
exactly this issue and also um, refugees and why people leave their own countries and I think in the West there aren't many people who realize what a role Western countries have to play in why poor countries are still poor. Yeah. I mean, in Malta, a lot of people say, like, oh, it's small, it has nothing to do with us. But actually, the whole Western world controls the economies of the whole world. Yes. Trade. Globalization. Exactly. I, I always use this example that I had come across, which had really stuck in my head, where Ghanaian tomato farmers are being undercut by Italian tin tomatoes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are subsidized by the EU. So mm-hmm. a local Ghanaian, it's cheaper for them to buy Italian tin tomatoes than their own local grown. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Ghanaian tomato farmer, it's obviously you're going to give up and your only choice is really to leave. Yeah. Um, but there aren't many people in the West who are ready to take that responsibility and say, okay, we're creating this, so we can't blame people for moving, for changing country, or for any of, uh, not any of, but a lot of the violence and issues that we see um, globally. So it's interesting to hear you, you had that same perspective. Mm. And I don't know if that was maybe from your studies or your family. Um, probably the combination of all of the above. Um, and what I could, the more you research into the news kind of paints free trade as this wonderful thing and globalisation is this wonderful thing but like it, with everything in life it's always far more nuanced and far less black and white than the news paints it and when you look at what is free trade and and how does that affect um, a, lot, a lot of communities and what kind of things has the World Bank and the IMF been doing over the past 50-60 years um, to, to open up trade so called open up trade um, then you, then you really see uh, the true cost of cheap consumer goods in the West. Like, why are they so cheap? It's because, um, yeah, because we've created more and more competition. We've essentially, um, yeah, put a lot of people um, out of business or forced them to work for far less and, um, and extracted a lot of wealth from a lot of um, a lot of communities and made them less resilient as well as a result. Um, so this, this is, I mean, obviously a huge topic. And you yeah, talk about <laughs> that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. So, yeah. So you had this. Um, you were blessed with this very good thinking where you just said, "Okay, this makes me want to help people more." But you mentioned maybe there was a time where it was you were maybe feeling a bit lost and nihilistic, but somehow you managed to kind of pull yourself out of that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it all kind of like... It, first of all, I didn't really... Um, one of like... So, I just to give you the laundry list of my injuries, I, um, I had five skull fractures, minor brain damage, ruptured liver, ruptured, ruptured stomach, punctured lung, smashed wrist, elbow, knee. I lost um, more than half of the blood in my body. Uh, and I was in a coma for four days. So it's um, one. So I was lucky enough to come out of it uh, now, and you wouldn't even know like I'm, like I can do most things that I was able to do before. So I'm very blessed that um, my genes and the doctors involved allowed me to recover to the point where I am now. But there were still some things that are long term. So I don't have a sense of smell, which my friends. Uh, constantly uh, forget and um, but that's fine it's no big deal it's not like you're telling a blind person to check out the rainbow yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other the other issue is my, my vision so I, I kind of my, my path before was to work in um, 
marketing and advertising and things like that, which was my career. And that was, you know, if that, that's what I studied towards. And if I didn't pursue that, then I would be back to square one. I wouldn't really be able to make much of a living. So I had no... I, and because of my vision, um, I really thought I was limited to hard labor jobs for the rest of my life because I couldn't really read very well. I, I have acquired dyslexia, which is called alexia. Um, so I didn't know what what I could do. So I thought, what, what do I do? What do I do with this? Let's let's see if I can get my confidence back. So I, th- I don't know, stupidly or perhaps smartly, I don't know. It depends how you look at it. I threw myself into um, seeing if I could live in London. So I moved to London and. And then I, I was looking for a job and I, I started working in hospitality and I, the minimum wage in London is very low. So I was making six pounds an hour. I was, barely, I, was, I was barely feeding myself with that money. So I thought, well, you know, I've got the marketing degree. So even if I can't do the job, they won't find out for another couple of months. So I'm just going to apply for a few marketing jobs. So I applied for a, a job at a digital advertising agency called Greenlight. And... I, I got the job and then they were so supportive that they were able to um, give me like a bigger monitor um, and able to accommodate for my vision stability and then this whole process showed me that I can still do things I started to regain my confidence and that was um, a really profound shift for me so it all kind of started there Realizing that I can actually not only do what I could do before, but I could potentially do even more. Amazing. So it's you. You sort of discover that you can actually contribute to society again. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That was, um, yeah. That was, that was and so, how did you go from? the agency into the climate world was this was your sort of research into the climate issue going on at the same time or did that come later um it was kind of going on in the background i mean i'd started reading books about environmental um like bill mckibben's earth with another a i read that book i read um books about economics like fishes of economic hitman so understanding how the IMF and world banks kind of work and learning more and more about what you don't really learn at university and at school. <laughs> um, and then I got involved with some movements like um, in London I was involved with the Zeitgeist Movement, which those group of people, community of people, opened me up to a lot of other issues and like fractions of banking. And I just, I guess the curiosity got the better of me and I started researching into so many different areas. And the turning point for me that made me realise that this has to be my life it can no longer be a hobby was um, one of our clients in the advertising agency um, focused on plus size fashions um, and they a lot of their like targeting was in what they called lower socioeconomic areas which um, like George Cohen we can just shorten to poor areas <laughs> and um, and that they were basically giving um, setting up lines of credit for for people in, in poor areas um, so getting them even more in debt and then I realized 
when I had sort of took that meeting with that client, that was my low point. <laughs> I just felt disgusting. I just walked out of that meeting and I was, I just, I felt like I needed a shower. <laughs> but a shower wouldn't quite do it. I just, yeah. that was my turning point. I realized that I have to get out of advertising or if I'm going to stay in advertising, I have to really carefully pick what I, who I work for. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a sort of challenge that a lot of people working in marketing and advertising and branding have to face more unsavory clients. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and coming back to Melbourne um, after my stint in London, I thought, okay, so either I work, I find one of these highly sought after and scarce jobs working in communications or marketing for a not-for-profit and take a massive pay cut, which I was happy to do because at least I'd be working towards something that I believed in, or... Yeah, or I work, um, and then this Open University's job came up, and that was um, thought. Well, I'm promoting higher education, so so I took that. But then, yeah, even that sort of got to a point where I realised that I have to make what I'm studying and what I'm reading about my full time thing. It can no longer be a side project. So that that transition is hard to do. Mm-hmm. But you did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I mean, I've only really had one sort of job in the climate industry, I guess you could say, and that was in Amsterdam. I was working for Sungevity, um, developing solar panel systems for residential homes, rich families in, in the Netherlands. Um, but it's, there's, unfortunately, there's few jobs in the environmental movement, even somewhere as progressive as Melbourne, yeah. and there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of demand for it. Yeah. And it's, yeah, so I was, I kind of in a way created my own job that doesn't pay myself any money <laughs> through starting up with this meal that's here. It's quite a surprising concept. I can relate to that. I started an NGO too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sometimes I feel like my business is an NGO as well. <laughs> yeah. but I think obviously when you are very driven by a purpose and a mission, um, very often, obviously impact comes first. And of course, financial helps you have impact, mm. but uh, very often it's not the first priority that you give. No. And obviously that brings its own set of challenges in creating something sustainable mm. that can carry on having impact in the future. Exactly. I think we live in exciting times for, um, for the, the progressive movements around the world, where through the power of the internet and technology, we can share skills and experience and learning and resources um, amongst each other across borders in real time. And we can have a much, much bigger impact as a result and we can spread very quickly. Yeah. So with very little cost as well. Yeah. So like gone are the days where you need $20,000 to build a website. Yeah. You can go on WordPress and buy a template for 50 bucks and build yourself an okay website. Yeah. You can um, use things like Slack to communicate with volunteers all around the world. You can use Google Hangouts to set up meetings and Skype and so on and so forth. So it's the infrastructure is there and it's free mm-hmm. for the most part. And it's, it's, very, it's very good. I think also there's been a shift in people's minds as well. Obviously, with the internet and with all this information at their fingertips, mm-hmm. people have become a lot more open-minded to new information. And also, I think definitely our generation, you know, we were the generation that sort of started Tom's Shoes. <laughs> you know, we're really looking for not just the NGO sphere. 
You never heard of Tom Shoes? Oh, wait, is, uh, is, is that the one where they give a yeah, pair of shoes? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you forgive me, you come from the Southern Hemisphere, because I think it was a British company. Yeah, uh, but that really changed the landscape. And for me, anyway, businesses actually having to have an impact. So suddenly people are not expecting impact to come just from NGOs, but also from the business sphere. And I think that's helped also NGOs, because it's made the whole purposeful driven projects a lot more cool and and Mm. people seek it they want their money and their time to go into things that matters to them Mm -hmm. and I think that's really shifted um, the scene even for for people within the NGO sphere yeah definitely I think a lot of university graduates coming out of um, that doesn't make sense a lot of people coming out of university nowadays are wanting not just to have a good, secure job. They want it to have a greater purpose than just money alone. And that's not just involved, people involved, involved in environmental movements. I think that's a lot of people. Because we're, we're, finding, we're finding out that this whole idea that we've been sold of make money, um, buy a house that's going to basically lock you into the same career for the next 30 years, and, and buy your way to happiness doesn't work so even like one of my favorite podcasts tangentially speaking Christopher Ryan talks about this all the time um, how we've been we've been fed this lie of um, of wealth buys happiness and even the people at the very top we're finding out that they're not that much happier like there's there's heaps of studies around that show that anything beyond any income level beyond 75,000 US or something like that um, doesn't it actually your happiness and well-being levels plateau and actually start going down (laughs) so even if you're winning in this game you're not any happier than than someone who's at sort of the middle or towards the bottom so this this really I think has paved the way to people seeking more than just money definitely and luckily you know that's also come at a time where you know going back, back to the issue of climate we are sort of in a time on a planetary level where the climate issue is becoming very, very serious and we need people, not just in the NGO world, but every citizen mm-hmm. to be actively engaging and, and finding the solution to what we're facing. It's, it's already very serious. Like, the news doesn't really do it justice. And like, there's so many things happening around the world that climate has exacerbated, but it doesn't really get talked about like the more research I've done into, the, for example, the Syrian conflict, climate played a big part of farmers not being able to grow any crops anymore because they were going through the longest drought in many, many decades. And so there's, there's already these kind of migrations that are causing these conflicts and, um, and exacerbating the global refugee crisis. I was just thinking, I, I find it very interesting how the statistics on climate change, of sort of where we are and where we're going to be in 50, 100 years, they're very gloomy. It's not yes. looking good. Yet for some reason, it's kind of like we're numb to it. It's like you can say, like, there's not going to be any fish in the sea in 2050, and people are just like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Do you have maybe some theory? I don't know if it's something you think about, like, why don't we care more as human beings? Well, we're just not long. We're not. We're not evolved to think that far ahead. I mean, we're living in this very technologically advanced society where we're looking at these long-term trends, but we're armed with the brain 
of a hunter-gatherer who's worried about like if that lion <laughs> is going to jump out at you or not, yeah. or um, or if you're going to have enough food to last to tomorrow, or where's the, where's the next source of water? So we, we've got we're equipped with a mind that's very that's that's very focused on short-term thinking. I just I, I think we just have our evolution, our cognitive evolution hasn't caught up to the the situation we now find ourselves in. That's really I've never thought of it like that before. It's very interesting. Because it always sort of surprises me. Like, why don't we care more? And also, we've we've created um, a system in politics, um, and also the business, and also in the business in a corporate world, where it very much rewards short-term benefit. So in Australia, we have a four-year political um, cycle. And I think a lot of countries that's pretty pretty much the yeah. same. So when you're in a in that kind of when you're in term for only four years. What are you focusing on? You're focusing on um, on to try and get re-elected for the next term. You're not really focusing on things, anything beyond four years. And climate is something that's happening over um, over decades. I mean, people used to think it was going to happen a hundred years from now, but we're now realizing it's not. So it's it doesn't really give rise to policies that will actually. Um, mitigate the effects of um, catastrophic climate change unless you're in a country where you have far longer political terms I mean obviously I I advocate for for freedom and political and like for a liberal democracy but in a country like China where they don't have that one of I mean I don't want obviously the war to become a totalitarian state but one of the things that I've been observing is that because they have that longer-term view, they are actually able to shift, to go, to adopt this warlike mentality in terms of how they generate electricity, for example. They are the key driver of the 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 um, the fall in in cost per kilowatt hour of solar power generation because they've they've decided okay. We're going to stop. We're going to stop building any more coal-fired power plants after 2020. So we're going to plateau. We're going to shift very quickly to renewable energy. And they've just they've, they've made that statement and and they've made the plan and now they're working towards it. Yeah. So if the business sector decides that's not what we want, they basically, I'm sure they take on some of the concerns, but it's not like America where yeah. the business sector is that powerful that they can actually derail any such projects. Sure. And at the end of the day, you know, the business sector always adapts to government policy. So, you know, they will find ways to find new opportunities within current frameworks. Always, always. I mean, Actually, that's what you get taught in economics. Like, you create the policies and the business will yeah, adapt. For sure. A very good friend of mine, uh, Polly Higgins, I don't know if you're uh, aware yeah. of any of her work, Polly Higgins. She's been doing an amazing job campaigning to change the legal framework and to include in the UN a charter for ecocide. So right now we have genocide, um, but no ecocide. Mm-hmm. But actually she discovered through her research that when um, the UN first formulated this uh, policy against genocide, they were actually going to include um, ecocide law, huh. uh, but they pulled it out at the last minute. And she's campaigning to try and bring this back in because... 
at the end of the day, as soon as this law is in place, business will adapt. Yes. And actually, some businesses need this law. She tells a very powerful story about a CEO. She was talking to a CEO of an oil company mm-hmm. and he wanted to do investment into cleaner, some kind of cleaner technology and mm-hmm. he couldn't mm-hmm. because he knew that if he did, his competitors wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So if there was a law requiring it, then it would drive that competition and actually everyone would benefit. Exactly. <laughs> so the problem is that the law isn't there yet. Again, because, you know, not so much long-term vision. Mm. Uh, and what is the priority of a publicly listed company, corporation? It's short-term profit for the shareholders. So if, what are they called? Fiduciary, it's a fiduciary, fiduciary duty of, um, of the directors to drive the company in that direction. So if, this, say, the CEO of Shell um, has a wonderful experience somewhere and realises the error of, like, the impacts that these companies having and then decides okay we're going to change direction we're going to do this this and this we're going to invest this money in, in renewable energy and, 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 there's no, and they're not going to realise the benefits for maybe 10 years he's going to get fired overnight and they're going to replace him with someone else who's just going to keep yeah. um, keep yielding those short term profits yeah, this was something I struggled with very much when I studied economics, you know, the negative externalities for the, for the planet and why the community are never taken into account in an economic model. Not at all. And that's what the government's supposed to do. But obviously the system doesn't really work that way. No, and, and how do we get to that transition from um, neoclassical economics, which puts the environment as a subsector of the greater economy, the one we can just like, take from? Um, irrespective of whether it's renewable or not, to um, that shift in that paradigm shift that must occur to to one where the human economy is a subject subsector of the environment itself, yeah. which is what reality is. <laughs> yeah, we are living in this global biosphere. There's another great book called Sacred Economics. I don't know uh, if you've uh, aware of Charles on, Eisenstein. It's on my list, actually. I've I, I've listened to a number of his podcasts and I've, I think he's... I've, I've seen a few of his documentaries as well. He's great. Yeah, he's got a very powerful YouTube video. I think he's, he's doing a great job of reframing this exact thing. You know, we are part of nature. And at the end of the day, the natural resources that go into an economic system are finite. Mm-hmm. So unless we start recognizing this reality, you know, there's going to be a very sharp handbrake mm-hmm. on our economy. I'll never forget this... Um, interview that David Suzuki had oh, I guess a, a closer room discussion that David Suzuki had with one of the um, directors of I think it was Shell or BP um, over the tar sands um, mine in, in Alberta, Canada and, and then basically David Suzuki said before we start this meeting I just want to get a few things clear so like, let's just make sure that we are in alignment in terms of what is the number one priority for the local for the people and and the guy's like, you know, like jobs and that kind of thing. He's like, no, 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 even before that. So what do we need? We need clean air so we can breathe because if we have dirty air, then we'll get sick and we die. We need clean water because we're, what, 70% water. If we, if we don't have clean water, we get sick and we die. Um, and we need clean soil to grow our food because if we don't have that, we, we get sick and, and we die. Um, and if we can just agree on that as as a as a precursor to anything, like 
they're the fundamentals of human life and all life. And and if we can just agree on that, then we can proceed with the meeting. And he extended his hand to the oil executive, and he just got up and walked away. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very powerful story and something very common within the business industry. Um, I actually never thought that I would start a business because after studying my master's in, in development, I was so so disappointed with the economic system and so feeling like there's just no way that something positive can come out of something that's designed in such a fundamentally flawed way. And in fact, I spent quite a few years in rebellion. I <laughs> yeah. had dreadlocks and was walking around barefoot saying, I'm never going to work. Screw the corporations, yeah, man. So I, was, I was very anti-corporation. <laughs> but um, I eventually realized that we can't leave it just to NGOs to change society. We need NGOs, we need politicians, we need business, we need people with these values in every sphere of, of human activity. Definitely. And after spending quite a, a time in the NGO world, I, I also have, you mentioned you have an entrepreneurial mother before we started this. I have yeah. an entrepreneurial father. There you go. <laughs> so I had that inspiration as well to just say, okay, you know what, I'm going to start a business, but I'm going to start a business that has a mission to do something good for this community, to mm-hmm. offer healthy food, try and do it in the most sustainable way that we can. Mm-hmm. But it was it was quite a shift. It took a few years for me to say, okay, there is some chance that business can be a force for good. Yeah. And still now, I mean, after three and a half years, I realize how difficult it is because, mm-hmm. you know, like me, for example, I, I have very high ideals for my business. But the roots of my business are in a very flawed capitalistic system mm-hmm. which doesn't support this kind of innovation it actually is the reverse it's holding you back yes. from taking the decisions that are not just the best for your business but the best for all the community mm-hmm. and so there's really some way to go i think for enough businesses to have this kind of intention to push for a chain a big change in the mm-hmm. framework yeah definitely it's i mean the structures need to be there to reward businesses so they're not just patting themselves on the back and saying, oh, I feel good because we're doing something for, for the society and good for the um, society and good for the environment. It needs to reward them in some tangible way. It needs to be part of their, um, their key metrics yeah. that they work towards. I mean, I, I don't know enough about it, but I, I hear that the B Corp movement that's spreading around the world has those values in place. Yeah. But I'm not sure if that's enough. Like, I think mm-hmm. it needs to be institutionalized at the policy level somehow I don't know how I think even beyond that well it's actually not that difficult to mm-hmm. implement policies which support these kind of decisions mm-hmm. unfortunately there's very often a lack of political will to take quite easy policy decisions mm-hmm. for example you know at the grassy opera I was saying we use compostable packaging yeah. it's quite a bit more expensive than plastic or any other mm-hmm. sort of toxic um, product that is usually used in the catering industry for the government to just make a law even if they don't want to ban plastic they can just offer um, lower licenses for example mm-hmm. something which will cost them very little but yeah. you know that's going to really drive I mean I choose to do it anyway but most restaurants in Ireland don't choose to do it because of the extra cost so if yeah. you can just offset that yeah. the loss the government's going to make is very very small yeah. and you know, we can actually benefit substantially from this because all you need is a good system for collection and then you're generating soil which can be sold 
Actually, you're right. I mean, it's not that difficult. I just have to go back to my environmental economics class and Pagovian taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I come from the country that was the first that holds the, um, the unfortunate uh, uh, place of being the first country in the world to reverse a carbon tax, <laughs> which uh, I'm very much ashamed yeah. uh, about. But, but that's the way forward, is actually taxing the negative things, the things that impact the environment and society in a negative way. Mm-hmm. So then businesses will act accordingly yeah. to reduce them yeah. and, um, and promote yeah. those practices that, yeah. that don't do that. And exactly as we said, you know, economic theory shows that this has to be done. It's mm. the only way to prevent the negative, um, we call them externalities, but the negative effects of business which are not accounted for mm. from a strictly profit perspective. But while we're on the topic of economics, I mean... What are your thoughts on this ludicrous idea of um, infinite growth in a finite world? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I like that actually, you're reversing that... the questions onto me. Sorry? <laughs> I'm supposed to be asking. Yeah, we reverse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's essentially the, 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 the foundation of everything, yeah. isn't it? Like, we live in a global um, society which, I mean, you just need to turn on the news and everything's about jobs and growth. Mm-hmm. And people are forgetting that we don't have infinite resources, yeah. especially non-renewable resources. I mean, it's in the name. But also, you know, after the war, I think there was this um, connection between economic growth and better standards of living. Mm. And yes, after the war, that was true. But now that's not necessarily true. No. Uh, we can get better standards of living through cleaner air, which we're not necessarily going to get through the growth of the economy. Yeah. I mean, in Malta, for example, we have a very serious problem with both water and air pollution. Mm. A very low standard of air quality and very serious water problem. Mm. Our economic growth is putting more pressure on these systems. So again, we could have less tourists, higher quality tourists, channel that money into the sectors that we feel are going to support the long-term future of the island and get higher standards of living with less economic growth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it's... Ideas like this are very powerfully ingrained into the consciousness of our people. Mm -hmm. And it takes generation after generation to really, I mean, sort of come out, for example, of this war consciousness. You know, our generation is probably the first one to grow up um, so free of war since our grandparents. Mm -hmm. So yes, for us, we can have this this perspective, but it's easy to understand why generations before us did equate it that way and Mm -hmm. did value job stability and and other things, which maybe for us, we feel, okay, we have other priorities. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think this is obviously a very important dialogue to have because most people don't study economics so unless you have the knowledge to understand why some of these things actually don't hold true Mm -hmm. in reality then you're just going to carry on thinking that way it's true and people sort of perceive economics as dry and boring so it's it's hard it can be be. I seriously suffered through the statistics part of my economics degree (laughs) But yeah. when I started studying development, it was actually inspired by uh, my development modules in economics. Mm-hmm. That got a lot more interesting to me because it felt a lot more real. Mm. Economic theory can be very removed from yeah, the reality of life. It's yeah. very abstract. We know 
the homogeneous man. It doesn't exist, you know. Utility core... maximizing homo... What is it? Homo economicus. Homo economicus, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean... It doesn't get swayed by marketing or advertising, no. Or by his friends or family or... It doesn't make any impulse purchases. Yeah, so, you know, you're studying these models in economics as a student and you know for a fact that you are not homo economicus. You know that these models don't apply to you. So it's very difficult to make that relate to your life. And when I started studying development and I realized how we as humans are actually failing economic models, then that got me really interested. <laughs> Because I realized, okay, that we can change. Our human failures, like the failures of the IMF and the World Bank, those we can correct. Economic theory is just there to guide us, but really it's our lack of wisdom and how we wield these tools that have created the mess economically mm -hmm. that we're in today I feel exactly it's um, it's very much that yeah we really need to change our way of thinking about what is what is an affluent society um, it's not just one that's just full of goods full of full of toasters full of things. <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> um, yeah exactly and and yeah like I mentioned before it's it seems that The more we follow this path, the, the less happy we become, and the more it, it sort of negatively impacts a lot of other communities um, around the world. So it's something that we. I think another sort of interesting um, thing that we could maybe discuss is obviously a lot of third world countries are now having more emissions because they're growing. Yeah. And obviously, it seems quite hypocritical from a Western point of view now that we've had a lot of our growth and yeah. we've you know, used all our fossil fuels to now turn around to countries like. China, Japan, Hong Kong, and, and say, stop, <laughs> when we didn't. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts about that. Because obviously there, there is now some inequality to the climate issue. Definitely. I mean, that's, that's essentially the major tension in the uh, UN climate talks. I was lucky enough to attend the uh, COP21 climate talks in Paris. And uh, I mean, in my postgraduate studies, we did a few modules on, on, on that framework. And they've got tier one countries, which are the developed countries that have historically the, the highest emissions. I mean, currently, I think China is the number one emitter. Um, and that they fall into tier two, which we're, what, with the final agreements that we make, say the, the Paris Accord, um, with, they have different... The, the, I guess the, the targets that they set are not necessarily as um, strict doing, uh, as strict to say the tier one countries. So yeah, it, it's a bit tricky. It is definitely like something that we have to grapple with. Um, the unfortunate reality is that in these climate talks is the tier one countries hold the most power. I remember the, my first um, briefing in the first day of the climate talks, or, or, I think it was the second day actually, We found out, oh, there's a bit of, um, we found out that there's a memo from the US saying that we're not going to proceed with these climate talks unless they can show us that the final uh, agreement will not be legally binding because we won't be able to get it through Congress. Because as, as a lot of people know, Congress is bought and sold by the fossil fuel industry, yeah. uh, Koch brothers and so on and so forth. And that, that in itself, I guess, that little anecdote <laughs> makes you realize that no, I can't. No matter what, it's um, it's quite a flawed system. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. And I mean, going back to your question, it, it's not just fossil fuels. It's also like, I mean, going back to let's meet, let's heat. 
it's that's why it's something that we have to be careful in our messaging that we're not telling um, developed countries, sorry, developing countries that they need to eat less meat for the climate. Um, they're already suffering malnutrition, so whatever meat they eat, they 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 need it. I can if if that's all they have there. It's very much our campaign is very much focused on people who can afford to choose, um, and that's the global middle and upper class. Mm-hmm. And that's no as as we all know, that's no longer limited to first world countries. Yeah. Um, there's one of the biggest. Uh, one of the one of the biggest drivers of demand is actually the, the growing middle class in in places like China. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's why like China's recently gone out and actually introduced dietary guidelines that that recommend people reduce their cons- mm-hmm. half their consumption yeah. of meat, which is fantastic. So you actually campaign not just in Australia but on a global level to all different countries because we have to ambitious. We have to <laughs> yeah. because. Like going back to what we were talking about before, we live in a globalized economy. In Australia, like we, fifty percent of our emissions come from the livestock sector, but seventy percent of our livestock is exported. Yeah. Oh, especially beef. Yeah. We're one of the world's major beef exporters. So if if my campaign, if Let's Make the Seat succeeds in reducing the demand in Australia, all that means is more of it will be exported. Mm-hmm. So global net emissions from the agricultural sector won't decrease. In fact, they'll just keep increasing. So it must be a global campaign for it to be effective. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm here in Malta. Yeah. I mean, obviously here in Malta, catch up with a friend. But I mean, that's uh, part of the reason why I'm, I'm on this trip is to really really solidify those uh, relationships we have with other organizations in Europe and the States and China. And also um, start up um, groups of volunteers and that we can really... So we're not just Australia-centric because we must expand yeah. um, our reach as soon as possible. And maybe just explain a little bit for, for those that are listening, because obviously I've listened to your TED Talk and seen your website and I've got your app. I just started your challenge, yeah, <laughs> which sure. I think I'm going to win. Good. No, well, you will You'll find it boring, actually. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's very interesting and I always want to share it with other people as well because I think, you know, gamifying these kind of daily choices, um, just to explain, Mark has created this app um, where you do a 30-day challenge to keep your eating within a certain amount of climate impact points. So every day you're registering your meal and it will calculate how many points um, each meal has and you need to stay within um, these targets for the month. So you can assess how you're doing and, and also how much each meal is impacting the environment, which is, is really beautiful. So well done for that. I think it's it's important to bring this kind of gamification to our choices because very often we sort of start out with very good intentions but we kind of lose inspiration and motivation along the way. But when it's turned into a game, I think it's easier to kind of keep up the, the motivation. So I think totally. it's a really good idea and a great app. Thanks. Well, it's the first version, so we, we hope to make it even better and we hope to introduce things like so people can compete with their friends and mm-hmm. that kind of thing because I think that will make it even more powerful That's people cool. love um, the social aspect. aspect the social yeah. aspect as well yeah. um, I think also I'd like to just sort of say you know that um, you know the, the campaign even though it is promoting less meat it's not promoting no meat which I think is interesting and I think it's a lot 
uh, more approachable for people because for a lot of people cutting out meat completely is just not an option and I, I really like your sort of very soft approach to that you're sort of giving the facts and you're saying listen we need to eat more appropriately to our climate but what that's going to look like for each person is different exactly i mean the reason the reason we went down this path is because i realized that it's well, we've got i mean if you're if you're working on um reducing meat consumption and, and getting more people to become vegetarian for animal rights uh, reasons and that kind of thing then then yeah you've got a much longer time frame to get there uh, but when it comes to climate change, there's this massive sense of urgency. Like, if you speak to any climate scientist, they, they'll all agree and tell you that the window within which we have to act to avoid runaway climate change, which is defined as where we've absolutely lost control over it, anything short of global geoengineering, which scares the hell out of me, mm-hmm. um, we've still got time now, maybe like that window is shrinking, so we need to act fast. Like some, so say five years, some mm-hmm. say ten, but mm-hmm. some even say we've already passed that point. Yeah. So essentially, we've got no time, and um, and we need to go for the low hanging fruit as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we found through the app and through our communications efforts that is is more wide reaching than a vegetarian or vegan only campaign. Mm-hmm. And people are much more open to it, mm-hmm. especially when it's in the form of like a, a game and an app, which is why do we develop the climate zone challenge. And that also plugs into people uh, analysing what their carbohydrate intake and their sugar intake and all the other mm-hmm. um, aspects of analysing your steps and, mm-hmm. and counting all the different aspects of your life. So for those people who... Um, if you haven't seen uh, our TED talk, it's called Reclaim Our Future. And if you go to letsmeetlessheat.org, you, you can make a talk from there. But basically, in summary, what I wanted to convey in that TED talk was that uh, we cannot reach a stable climate unless we include agriculture. So around the world, um, the grassroots climate organizations, environmental organizations, as well as our geopolitical reaction to climate change largely focuses on fossil fuel emissions, so carbon dioxide emissions. But uh, what the climate models show us is that even if we completely transition to renewable energy, um, because of our rising meat consumption, overconsumption of meat I would say, and more and more people adopt the meat-heavy Western diet, mm-hmm. um, we really we won't be able to avoid catastrophic climate change even if we transition to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So this is I think this is something important. that is... I mean, you've mentioned your struggle in trying to get this information across to some of the big NGOs, and I think it's, it's one of the sort of real failings of the education system at the moment where the climate issue and the diet issue are seen as so separate, and not many people know that actually the biggest impact you can have is changing your diet beyond you know you can stop using fossil fuels overnight but if you don't change the way you eat you're not going to have the impact that we need to have on the environment exactly like there's for example one of the things i found was even if you put um on a say a house for a family of four if you put solar panels on your roof but you eat two steaks a week in a normal household it undoes the the climate benefit of putting those solar panels on your roof. And that's so it's 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 one of, if not the biggest 
um, change you can make in your own personal consumption yeah. to reduce your carbon impact. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so it's it's amazing. Like I, I, I I've all, it's almost become its own kind of climate denial where the rest of the climate movement, even though I really respect the, the work that they're doing and a lot of people, they've got a lot of friends in it. Um, it blows my mind that it's even with film, amazing films like Cowspiracy that's been out for a number of years now. Um, they're still not making uh, the agriculture sector and diet part of their communications. And well, I think Cowspiracy was a definite game change, and I think mm-hmm. one of the most powerful things about Cowspiracy was not the fact itself, but the fact that it was being denied by mm-hmm. so many of these climate NGOs. Because you just thought, why? Like it's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we know economics, and we know that NGOs nowadays are funded by business. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was studying for my master's, one of the things that we were studying was the fact that NGOs have made this transition now from being non-governmental to now being basically arms of government and business because that's where they get their funding. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the major NGOs also can't say certain things because of the donations that they get from the agricultural industry. Mm. So again, this is quite another frustrating kind of um, obstacle that you're butting your head up against when you have this kind of philosophy. Definitely, and I've I've heard I've heard that as well from um, people pretty high up in certain NGOs, like that they will affect their donor base and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, if it does affect your donor base, but you're not achieving like what's more important, your donations or the, or impact. the, the <laughs> impact that you're seeking to influence in the world. Yeah. Definitely. That's what it comes down to. And I've, I mean, I've called people like Naomi Klein out on it. Mm-hmm. I've called um, Al Gore out on it when I was mm-hmm. at the UN Climate Talk. So I mm-hmm. had a chance to mm-hmm. have a brief interaction with him. But mm-hmm. he was just, just waved it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. just wasn't concerned and engaging. Yeah. Again, I think diet is one of these things that is very personal. And it's, it's a hard thing to change in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I've changed my diet drastically over the past seven years. And it's not an easy thing to do. So obviously... A lot, there's a lot of resistance within people because not only is it difficult, you know, self-discipline, but it also affects your interactions around the family and with friends, how you spend your leisure time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's almost quite a touchy subject. It is, and that's one of the other reasons why a lot of people, a lot of organisations stay away from it. Um, yeah, so it is, it is a touchy subject, but by not at the end of the day if, if you're running a not-for-profit or you're working a not-for-profit it requires courage yeah because change is hard um if you if you're not in it to to create change then then what's the point um i, I really yeah i mean it's hard but that doesn't mean we should avoid it yeah we have to really take the courage and 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 go out and, and do what's necessary not what's politically feasible. Yeah, definitely. I never thought that I would um, ask questions about Trump on this podcast, but uh, I would like to get your thoughts, because obviously, you know, as an environmentalist, as a liberal, seeing someone like Trump get elected in the States, which is already, you know, a country that has thrown the spanner in the works of a lot of climate change policies. Obviously, I, I can sort of guess your feelings about it, but why do you think a country like America would choose to take such a step back? In a, in a way, you could say like there also must be some failings within the green movement that are sort of 
and not giving enough of a good direction for people to feel inspired about that they would kind of look back towards you know more of an ethnocentric um, state of view well I mean in, in the states I lived over there for a year and I've got royalties over there so I understand the political system fairly well um, it's it's a different kind of system to uh, a prefer, uh, preferential system or um, alternative voting system so it, I mean, a lot of people understand it as first past the post. Mm-hmm. So when the unfortunate reality is that if you vote for a minority party like the Green Party in the states, that your vote will um, will not will will go towards will actually detract away from. So let's let's say if you're um, if you're an American citizen just before the election, and let's say let's say I'm an American citizen just before the election. Um, for some reason, I decided to vote for Hillary Clinton and not just like be done with the whole thing and walk away and not vote for anyone, <laughs> um, which was also a form of pop political activism. Um, it, let's say I decided to vote for Libertarian Party or the Green Party, um, then my vote, which would have otherwise gone for Hillary Clinton, um, will be one less vote for her because those votes... Yeah. They don't really so obviously the liberal vote is kind of getting split along the more progressive and the Greens and uh, yeah. politicians like Bernie Sanders, whereas Trump just has all of the rest of the more conservative. The conservative vote isn't being split maybe in the same way. Not as much, yeah. I think it's a lot more diffuse. I mean, that's one of the reasons. There's, there's, a, there's a whole host of reasons why Trump got elected. I mean, a lot of people, I don't have all the answers, but I've got a few ideas of what it could be. Um, I think at the end of the day... Um, People just don't feel represented by, I mean, I've heard some people call it the two-party dictatorship in the States, because if you, if you, if you look at how it's moving more and more to the right. I was having this chat with, um, with Mike and a few other friends the other day about how someone like Bernie Sanders is, is in Europe, he would be considered a moderate, a centrist. He would not be considered someone who's very left. Whereas in the States... They call him a socialist, and that's like calling someone a communist in the states. So he's considered extreme left. Um, so that's obviously indicative of this shift towards the right. Um, shift, or maybe America has always kind of been a bit like that. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, it's yeah. I just don't feel. I think people don't feel represented um, by the U.S. political system. I think also, I mean, we have a bit this problem in Malta that very often the more progressive liberal parties are not doing enough to really convince voters of their authenticity. So they end up not voting or voting for a candidate that can't get elected. So then obviously amongst the remaining votes, the conservative vote um, has, has the more power. Mm. And I think this is also something that we need to reflect on within the Green Movement because mm-hmm. I think... Like, there needs to be a more authentic and strong leadership. And, of course, issues like this, where you have leaders of the Green Movement denying one of the main causes of climate change, it obviously smacks of authenticity, and it's very difficult for our generation to support this kind of leadership. Mm. So then you end up with a lot of apathetic uh, voters. Yeah, totally. I mean, if, if, I, if I was a US citizen, I don't know what I would have done. I probably wouldn't have voted at all. Because I mean that in itself would probably help Trump as well, but yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I, I just the more I saw like, um, I mean the more you read about the whole 
uh, the Clinton um, dynasty, yeah. if you whatever you want to call it, and and how like their ties to um, Middle Eastern oil um, dictatorships and two hundred fifty thousand dollars speaking fees. Like, what can you say that's, that's <laughs> that that will give you that kind of value? Yeah. Um, and 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 also just how fake and how disingenuous Hillary like Clinton is and was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people just and then someone like Trump comes along who just like says whatever whatever he wants, and yeah. you think here's a loose cannon. Maybe <laughs> we do need a spanner in the works to shake things yeah. up. I mean, yeah. now we're realizing that he's shaking things up for the worse. Yeah. But I think if people are backed into a corner, yeah, they they don't know what else to do. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think um, this within you know the sort of liberal movement, we need to really sort of take a look at the leadership that we're promoting and the levels of authenticity of the kind of policies that are being promoted. Because if if people within this sort of framework are not really taking a stand against you know policies which are just being funded by the businesses, then it's going to be very difficult for for this movement to actually make some change within the political system. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I didn't think we were going to talk about politics on no. this podcast. Maybe it's uh, Malta's election fever Possibly. <laughs> impacting <Yeah>. us. <laughs> I mean, I've heard both sides. I mean, my, uh, Mike's told me um, uh, his perspective and I've heard the other side and don't know where I stand because yeah. I don't know enough about it. But it's definitely interesting to see as an observer. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it's, I mean, it, when I heard that Malta had a ninety-five percent voter turnout, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. But yeah. then you realise that there's there's actually a lot of, um, I mean, from from what I've I've been told. I mean, I I'm no authority on it. Obviously, yeah. I'm an Australian come and been here for a week. <laughs> but it it seems to me that people uh, don't necessarily vote on policies here. They very much kind of stick to their side, um, like like people do in the states. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to looking at okay, what's Musk's policy? What's the opposition's policy? Yeah. Weighing it up in yeah. each election and go actually this time I'm going to vote for the other side because I support their policies. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like I'm I'm a Labour voter for yeah. life. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, we do have you know some people are just born into. I think it's changing a bit with our generation. We don't feel that same um, maybe party loyalty that our parents' generation did. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, it's also more that history, you know, because we've had some very sort of harsh political divides in mm-hmm. the past, and those kind of divides and and history you don't just shake off. You know, our generation are lucky. I was born in 1987. 1997 was very. Um, disruptive um, time for more that was a very important election I don't remember it I was brought up post that you know for my parents it was significant and you know so on but for me I have no memory of it so obviously we 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 are brought into a different climate and I think we're more dexterous with our voting Mm -hmm. Um, but yes obviously it does still play a role Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Good to hear. So people are being a bit more open to actually yeah. voting outside. And as you said, you know, with climate, the internet has changed the people people's access to information. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also very, very powerful. If anyone feels a bit uh, disconcerted or nihilistic or apathetic about it all, I'd recommend this book called Blessed Unrest. Fantastic. Um, it's an incredible book. Yeah. And or for those of you who haven't read it. Um, I guess the main hypothesis of that book is that 
as the as can, as as capitalism or unfettered capitalism reaches its cancer stage, where it becomes killing, it 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 starts killing the host and like the snake eating its own tail. Um, the the immunological response of the planet is us, is a progressive movement who are spreading through the power of the internet, who are interconnecting, who are working increasingly together into cohesion. I mean. It's, I mean, it, there is an element of idealism in it, but I'm starting to see more and more of it. Yeah. So this 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 book will hopefully pick you up and make you feel a bit. Um, yeah. It's a very positive book. We actually have a copy at the Grosso Hopper in Zira, so you can go down there and have a read. Really fantastic book. I think our copy is full of my underlines. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, cool. fantastic. So I think I'll ask one more question. Sure. Um, we always end this podcast by the question, what does it mean to you uh, personally to live a healthy and nourished life? Um, in terms of diet or just... In general. Overall? Beyond diet, just in general. I if mean, you want to answer by diet, you can also. Sure. I mean, obviously, I'm going to start with diet. <laughs> I think it's important to really understand um, the broader impacts of your food choices. So starting with, obviously, I'm biased, but starting with climate... Um, so understanding the climate impacts of your food, and that goes far beyond food miles. In fact, food miles only make up a small percentage. Um, and also the um, the impact on on the global forests, impact on the seas, impact on air. I mean, even if you go vegetarian, like understanding where does most of your soy come from? A lot of it comes from Brazil, at the cost of the Amazon. So. It's not just as simple as going vegetarian, or it's it's really understanding like all aspects of where your food comes from, and also um, not being so like uh, black and white about it. I'm vegetarian, therefore I'm good, or I'm vegan, therefore I'm the best, and it's not getting into these tribal things that we like to to get into. It's anyone who's reducing their meat consumption for environmental reasons. We should support them and pat them on the back and not say, you're, you're being a bad vegetarian or something like that. We're all in this together. We all need to um, not be so tribal and really support each other and, and share recipes. And, and, and food is a communal thing. I think food is um, something that we've unfortunately, in the transition towards fast food, um, we've, it's also uh, reduced how many communal meals we have and that in going back to the the term nourishing what is nourishing for the soul community spending time with other human beings um getting to know each other and breaking bread is one of the oldest things we do that builds um trust and 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 strengthens and deepens our bonds with each other so food is something that must be shared and, um, and shouldn't really be eaten alone. But I mean, more and more of us are doing that, unfortunately. So it's, it's building community um, through food and through other things that we do together. It's eating and eating with awareness, I think ultimately is what it comes down to, um, of all impacts of your food, including how, if you choose to eat meat and how the animals were raised, picking free range and paying more for it because ultimately we should be paying more for better treatment of our animals um, if you choose to eat meat but yeah so increased awareness uh, increased community and also um, 
and also realizing that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably already there on their way that it's not all about um, money. I mean, it's the, the, the only final thing we have in our life is time. And, and I can't remember, I think it was Henry David Thoreau that talked about a man is wealthy, not in, how, um, not in his actual wealth, but how he spends his time or her time. Yeah. Unfortunately, all those quotes are like him. <laughs> it should be her, whatever, or they, yeah. or she or Joe. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Mark. I think it was really beautifully put. Funnily enough, I'm just realizing that this is, uh, I think, our eighth episode, and we actually haven't talked about food much at all, even though this is the Grasshopper podcast. We're talking about a lot of other areas of health and well being. But it's really nice to bring it back to the food and that was a big inspiration as I, I told you when we first met uh, behind my starting the Grassy Hopper um, and I, I really realized that the biggest thing that I could do to help the environment was to reduce my, my meat consumption and it's been a very happy journey for me to do that and it has actually created a lot of community and joy and actually more enjoyment of my food rather than less. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a very nice nice way to end the conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming and and for all the hard work that you're doing, for being an example of this change and for working for something that you believe in, uh, whatever way that we can help here through the Grassy Hopper and and our community here. Um, definitely, really happy to support your movement. Well, thanks for your time, Yasmin, and um, and thanks for listening to my rants <laughs> and. Um, and if, if you want to find out more, um, all those listeners at home, jump on our website, that's Um Try out Plum Turn Challenge, it's available on Android and iOS. And also, if you want to um, help out, we are looking for volunteers. And you don't have to be in Australia, you can be anywhere in the world. So um, just jump on our volunteer page and send us an email. And we can hopefully work together. Fantastic. <laughs> and if any of you have any comments or questions, we love hearing your feedback. I often bump into people in the street and they just give me a little quick sentence and I get surprised, like, oh, you listen to the show. That's nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very nice for me to get feedback and keep the inspiration for sharing these messages here locally. So thanks to all our listeners and very grateful for your spreading the word and helping us get this message out there. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! 
holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!